Hi there, my name's Ushin Lunny and welcome to Audio Talks presented to you by Harman. And in this episode, I am thrilled to be joined by two seasoned session musician sensations ready to take us behind the scenes into the secret lives of session musicians. Welcome to the podcast, Stephen Fuller, conference moderator and speaker for Race in STEM and former session musician with the likes of Lily Allen and the James Taylor Quartet. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you. How are you doing? Good to see you, mate. Thank you so much for joining us. And we are thrilled to be joined by Sean Lee, who is a very in-demand session musician, a multi-instrumentalist, a DJ, composer, recording artist, library music aficionado, and officially the hardest working tiger man in show business. Welcome, Sean. That's a mouthful. Good morning. <laughs> <laughs> You're very yeah. welcome, sir. All right. Thank you for joining us. Hey, so listen, I've just given a tiny, tiny glimpse of your two stellar careers in the world of music and much more for our listeners. But maybe you could fill in some of the blanks there and tell us a bit more about your career so far and give the listeners a bit of a flavour for what you do. So um, I'm going to ask each of you for a bit of an intro and we're going to start with your good self, Stephen. Hey, nice to be here. Thanks for having me. So I guess it all stems from childhood. You know, I grew up playing three instruments, wanted to be like my big brother. So I took the trombone, violin and piano and um, was, I guess you could say, in part of a number of groups, county and school level, you know, classically, jazz and what have you. 18 years of age, you know, moved back to London where I went to Trinity College of Music and I did a jazz degree there. And we grew up in the church, you know, that was the background. And so many musicians within the church have a great, great knowledge and understanding of music and its natural flair and how it's to be played in certain environments. So that was really a good schooling for me. So by the time I got to university or college, I was used to performing in general in front of, you know, decent crowds. And it was really there where, you know, I I was in a position where from a location perspective, I was able to be in touch with a number of friends who were from the church industry or from the church background anyway, who were working in industry. And, you know, Steve had come to London and he plays the trombone and we need horn sections for this. We need horn sections for that. And that's how it started, really. The first call up I ever received was at 18 years of age when Lamar came out of Fame Academy. We did, you know, a couple of shows in London town. And then, you know, in year two, I started working with the James Taylor Quartet again for a friend. It was in celebration of their 20th anniversary, funnily enough. So I was there playing amongst some giants in the the horn section. Lo and behold, year four came and a friend of mine from church, who's a fantastic drummer who goes by the name of McNasty. His official name is Josh McKenzie, but McNasty is his stage name. And we knew each other for many years. And he's actually the big brother of Labyrinth. And he was a drummer at the time under a record label who he was MD for the likes of Daniel Beddingfield and Natasha Beddingfield. And he called me up. like, Steve, Steve, we need a horn session to come down to Hackney. You know, we're in premises. We need this. We need that. Just come write the notes out on the score. You know, just, just come ready. I had no idea of who the artist was or anything like that. And we just get in and we're, we're playing, you know, the same thing over and over and over again. It was very monotonous. It was very boring, to be quite honest with you, because four years of playing jazz, four years of jazz scales and all this type of stuff was what it was. And then lo and behold, you know, the artist came and says we're number one. And long story short, it was Lily Allen. So that's where it got up to. And then obviously the rest is another story. But, you know, that's how it happened for me. 
Ah, that's a beautiful backstory. I love it. There's a nice symmetry to there and a great path. And I can imagine that moment of surprise when, you know, Lily Allen is unveiled uh, to the room. That's brilliant. And coming over to your good self, Sean, talk to us a bit about how somebody from the States ends up living in the UK and becomes the hardest working tiger man in show business. What's your origin story? Okay, Wowzers. I uh, was sort of born and raised in Wichita, Kansas, which is in the Midwest of America. And uh, I started playing when I was really young. I started on guitar first, and then I played guitar for a few years, and then I picked up the drums, and I was playing both at the same time. And I was always a huge lover of music, listening to records and the radio, and really just devouring everything I could get my ears on, you know, listening very critically. And so I got really interested about who was making these records, who was playing on these records. And so I started to look and, and that opened up a whole you know, world for me. And I think when I started to record music, I realized that I wanted to be an artist, but I also just loved to play. And I was very interested in also playing on records. And so I never thought that you couldn't do both. I felt like I could make my own records and play in other people's records. I could produce, I could do whatever I wanted to do. It was all part of the same world. I think a lot of people always thought you had to do one thing and specialize. My interests were always very diverse, so I just followed that path, even when that wasn't something that people were doing at the time. I moved out to LA in 88 with the idea of getting a record deal and also getting into whatever kind of musical trouble I could you know, get into. And then I probably started doing sessions in like 89 for people. And I think what's driven my session career, which is sort of a parallel thing that's going on in the background all the time, was people would like what I did on my own records and people would say, well, who's playing drums on that? And I'd be, oh, it's me. Well, would you come and do this drum session? Or, And so I started to apply my talents in that way. But I was also collaborating with people and writing with people and uh, there was lo loads of different levels of engagement. And that's continued all the way up until now. I got a record deal over here to Talking Loud in 1993, which you know about Giles Simon and brought me over here. As soon as I came over here, you know, I started, you know, writing and recording my own stuff. But I also was getting calls to do sessions over here because people knew about me. It was really interesting. I mean, in L.A., you know, I, I did sessions with Jeff Buckley, you know, like some really like random things. Music is a funny little world. There's all sorts of weird crossovers. If I look at what I've done on paper, some of these things are just from such different worlds, but they, it all makes sort of sense. But I think one of the first sessions that I, you know, I did over in London was I got called to Abbey Road to play guitar on the Spice Girls, you know, <laughs> very <laughs> random. But I've done a lot of underground a lot of left field, a lot, a lot of people, if I reeled off the names, people would know who they are. Or well, only musos would know who they are. But, you know, I'm into music. That's what I do. And if somebody wants me to do something, if I want to do it, I do it. And I still adhere to that today. You know, I do what I like and I like what I do. And, and it's all good. That's sort of an introduction to how I got over here. Fantastic. I absolutely love that. And, you know, a bit of disclosure here for the listeners. I have been a huge fan of Sean's work since the early Talking Loud days onwards. Big up Giles Peterson there. He signed some great people back in the day. And uh, yeah, if you really want to just treat your ears, I recommend you check out his back catalogue. And we'll be linking, of course, to both Sean and Steve's websites in the show notes. So, folks, I don't know who wants to jump in here. I mean, maybe just for the listeners, if they're not familiar with this world, obviously all of us are. We've bought 
you know, vinyl records back in the day, reading about the musicians on the sleeve liners and maybe buying records because of the musicians. I know I certainly did. But basically, if anybody doesn't know, how would you describe a session musician? What are they? I think, you know, you pay, we play. <laughs> it's, so this, it's like on records, it's on, you know, TV shows, you know, on tour. It's any situation that you need a musician to come play. And generally session musicians are people that are quite quick and they were able to find a part or learn a part quite quickly and play it well and have good time, good feel, good tone and make music sound good. And I think that's what session musicians do. I think that's a hundred percent, Sean. I, I couldn't agree more. I think what I would add to that is, you know, the ability also, a skill set of a session musician is, I'm sure as you're aware, being able to turn it on for when it's live, but then also turn it on for when you're in the studio, because it's two different types of playing. You know, when you're live, you can, you know, you can feel, you can feel the audience, you can feel the crowd, you can feel the vibe on the stage. When you're in the studio, you need to play as it needs to sound a particular way for the album. To a degree, it's got to be very plain. And then when you go on the road, you can embellish. So knowing which hat to wear for the occasion is also very important. Knowing which gear to play. Uh, Sean might play a different guitar in the studio compared to when it's live. I know I have a few trombones that I play different in the studio compared to when it's live. So 100%, you know, you pay, we'll play. It doesn't matter. It could be for a kid's TV show because there's royalties and commission. It could be for supermarkets per se, for any supermarket or whatever it is. You know, we're happy to be on board of it because we know what the potential outcome is. It's not an industry where you can say, yes, look, we have life insurance. We have bonuses. We have, you know, death in service and all that type of stuff. So we need to think about it from a different perspective in terms of how we financially are rewarded in as many ways as we can to make sure that we're comfortable with the life in which we're living on a day-to-day -day basis. That number one is for us, but then obviously for our surrounding families and whoever else you have to support for financially. Yeah, well said. I mean, that's, I imagine, an increasingly difficult circle to square or, or whatever the phrase is, but, you know, both of you have arguably navigated that very well. Um, but, you know, coming back to that big picture you were painting there, like Steve, you mentioned a lot of different scenarios where, you know, you're working with Lily Allen, you're doing some music for maybe a uh, an unnamed supermarket, shall we say. <laughs> are there any particular musical genres that are well known for leveraging session musicians? I mean, I, I'm thinking back to like the golden age of Motown, the Funk Brothers and you know, Nashville is very noted and stacks, etc. Are there any genres or musical movements that particularly, you know, use session musicians or do you think it's across the board? I would say I think is across the board. However, what I'll say is that in my experience, I mean, look, I'm an early 80s baby. With that being the case, I would say at the moment, there's a lot of interest from my genre and background of musicians who come from maybe the gospel or the trap jazz type of industry who are able to facilitate some fantastic musicians who can play not just your stereotypical, you know, two and four and the beat, but they're going all over the place with chops, you know, with chord progressions and all sorts of things. But then these musicians of today's day and age, you know, they really look up to the recording greats, you know, Nathan East, for example, bass player with Eric Clapton and he's done so many, so many, so many different works of art. And I think it is art what he does. So I would say that, you know, from my experience and my understanding, the gospel trap jazz arena, the genre, it's been able to open up so many different avenues for 
so many people globally, dare I say. And it forces you to kind of explore different genres of music, whether it's hardcore, you know, jazz itself, whether it's just simple world music. It's also fused with with fusion, you know, likes of Jamiroquai, you know, and all these other greats who are very much open to exploring what music means in terms of its orchestra and the musicians and the music and instruments of what's used on these albums. Because we, or my genre, are listening to the likes of Winston, Dennis Rollins, who used to play the trombone on Travelling Without Moving and, you know, a part of the Jules Holland Orchestra and all that type of stuff. So always looking to up, you know, that. That's my perception anyway. I mean, Sean's coming from a different perspective, so I'm sure he's got something to add or a different way of thinking about things. I think what you're saying is absolutely right. I'm 60 now. I still work with a lot of younger musicians and I'm sort of around, you know, those kind of people that you're talking about, like the Joe Armand Joneses and the Ezra Collective and Yusef Days and Tom Mish and people like that. I mean, I'm doing some stuff with Tom in a few days time. And so I come from a very different world. And I think what you were saying is true because a lot of those guys I've found, you know, through the last few years that those younger musicians know who I am and, and they pay attention they admire what I do. Like you were saying, they look back. Like when I play drums, I play really simple. I don't throw any chops out. And all the drummers that I've met from, the, you know, the scene, all surprisingly for me, they really love my drumming, <laughs> which makes me laugh. But then I appreciate they see that I'm coming from a, a very different school and I'm, I'm only doing what I'm doing. And, and they're just like, man, your pocket's so amazing. For me, that's like a, some sort of weird full circle for people that have loads of chops to appreciate, I probably have like anti-chops chops. chops. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I, mean? I got space chops, you know, the doing nothing Sweet. chops, you know. But it's cool. I, I think what you see now that's really different, this might be slightly going sideways, but I think when I started off, you know, I played more than one instrument and I was always interested in being a multi-instrumentalist. And when I was doing that, what I was doing was pretty rare. You know, there were only a couple of people like Prince and Stevie is role models for me. And I think now everybody plays two, three, four instruments and they play them really well. And it's just normal. You know, I don't know one musician of a younger age that doesn't play at least two instruments really well. You know, they usually play more than that. And that's a big difference now, I think. And people not only can play more than one instrument, but they can write, they can sing, they can produce, you know, they can engineer. It's like, it's a much wider skill set now than there was before, uh, where people were more specialist, I think, back in the day. But I think, you know, a bit of both is definitely a healthy thing. Sean, you know, you hit so many notes there, which I'm, you know, it's bringing me back to my days of playing. I'm like, wow, yeah. I don't know if it's like for you, but I think it gets to a stage as well with a session musician. When you have the experience and people know who you are, you don't actually get any more calls to audition for anything. You're somebody who's a name. So, you know, if you're getting the call, they know what product you're bringing to a session or to a gig. And I remember once, you know, you talk about <laughs> you know, you, you're a basic in the pocket drummer, for example. I remember getting the call for the James Taylor Quartet. And I was 19 years of age, playing with, at the time, must have been 29 years of age people who are beasts. They're playing trombones like it's a trumpet. They're playing all this different stuff. And I'm literally, I said to my friend, his name's Graham Flowers, fantastic trumpeter. And I said to him, Graham, why am I here? <laughs> what have you done to me? Why are you putting me in a group with these people? And he said, 
look, what they do is fantastic. But what you do is you bring something different. You bring the feel that holds it together, which is what we need. You know, you've got that automatic just feel of how to play, how to be on stage, how to play the music, everything. And when I saw that again, it just, something just clicked. And I was like, yeah, whenever I get a call for something, it's because I have a purpose and they want whatever it is I'm bringing. So it's not just me, the trombonist, it's me, the individual. Sweet. Wow. You know, you've really taken us both deep into the world of the session musician there about the, you know, evolving your reputation, about the kind of the fear of maybe stepping up to the plate. There's a bit of trepidation to begin with, but then you absolutely, you prove yourself and it's, uh, you know, it's kind of in at the deep end. It really is, you know, stepping alongside these giants of musicianship. It's so cool to get a glimpse of that personal journey. But speaking of which, I would love to put you both on the spot, if I may. Now, you, you don't actually have to name any names unless you'd like to, but I'm wondering if you could choose a best or a worst session ever. Was there a session where everything was perfect or a session where, you know, it was so bad it was comical? I'll try to give you a quick best and, and worst. It's hard to choose a best because that can mean so many different things. I think one session that was, was really good for me, and I sort of mentioned it earlier, was when I got the call to play guitar on the Spice Girls. It was Spice World, so it would have been, I think, 1995, and they were probably the biggest pop group in the world at that time. And so that was amusing that somebody wanted me to play on a Spice Girls record first off. And then it was at Abbey Road, and again, Abbey Road is like this magical place that you want to work in there, man, you know, <laughs> I'd already done my own sessions in there doing like orchestral stuff, you know, prior to that. So I had worked there before, but any chance to go to Abbey Road? Yes, yes, yes. So they say Spice Girls, Abbey Road. They said I didn't really need to bring anything, just bring a guitar. And um, so I had a feeling it was going to be easy. And the whole session lasted about 20 minutes. They asked me to play like every two bars, I had to play a, a double stop, an octave double stop, like a car wash. And it was just like one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, three. So I played about 30 seconds of that. Maybe about eight of them I played. They were like, cool, got it. You know, so they were just going to sample one, fly it in, replace the sample. And they said, oh, can you just go whack it, whack it, whack it, whack it, So I muted the strings and didn't play any notes. You know, wah wah pedal, wacka 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 wacka, done. Okay, we got that. <laughs> and I was like, anything else? And they were like, no, that's it. I'm like, great. So that was it. <laughs> the, the, what made it really amazing was that that was the last tune they did for the album, and they had Abbey Road booked out the next day because they had block booked it for whatever for however long they blocked it for. They were going to come into the studio the next day. They're all getting paid. And they say, well, do you want to come in tomorrow and just record your own stuff? <laughs> <laughs> so I got a free day at Abbey Road just doing whatever I wanted to do with the full, you know, with engineers. And, and, and I got a couple of reels of 499 analog tape. You know, I got like uh, coffee mugs, T-shirts, <laughs> sweatshirts, you know, all the merch. So it was for me, that was a super big win, you know. Worst session, would I'm not going to name names, but. There's an artist that I still work with. He loves to do tons of takes. We record like with a, raw, a live band to tape. And so you're doing these takes over and over and over, which 
becomes difficult. You know, the more you play a song, your mind starts to go crazy or somebody else's <laughs> mind goes crazy and the madness starts to set in. And then like you can tell that somebody's cracking up and you're trying to not crack up. And then it's like one by one, everybody's starting to make mistakes. And so we, we spent a whole day, probably eight hours playing one song. Oh, can we do it one beat per minute faster? One slower. Key of E. No, not E flat. No, not F. It was like one of them ones. And you're trying to like play it so great every time. At least I was. I was like trying to maintain the level. And I just made it through the day without losing my mind. Came in the next day. And then the art, we listened to the playback and it sounded really good. I was like, oh, good. We're moving on. And he goes, oh, I'd like to try it like one more time. And I was like, oh, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> and then we spent like probably did another 30 takes on this tune. We got to about four o'clock or something. It, I don't know if it was in the middle of a take or after a take. It's probably after a take. And I'm, I'm super positive, super professional. You got to make the artist happy. You're there to do that. But I just went, I'm sorry, I can't do this anymore. I, I can't play this song anymore. You know, we've played this song for, you know, whatever it was, like 20 hours or something. And I was like, I'm done. I'm just done. I can't do it. And I sort of walked out of the studio and I, I walked down the road, just got some fresh air and, you know, cleared my head, you know, probably drank a bottle of vodka or something. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then I came back and the band was in the kitchen and, and they were all like, thank God you said something. <laughs> thank God you said something. We were all dying inside. And like nobody would say anything. I guess the fact that I sort of like produce and I do my own stuff, people that just do sessions only sometimes will just go along with whatever. Somebody says, walk off a mountain or whatever, they'll just do it. I kind of maybe spoke up a little bit too late in the game, but I sort of like was the leader in that regard and said, look, man, we can't do this. You're killing us. <laughs> you know, I told the guy, so you're, you're literally killing us. If we haven't got it by now, we ain't getting it. Yeah. You know what I mean? So that was, that was the only session I ever had where I just had to like throw it all in and say, look, man, I'm, I'm done. I'm done. I can't do it. You know, but it was understandable. But yeah, that was, that was the hardest session, man, for sure. That's hilarious. That was the straw that broke the camel's back right there. Mutiny in the studio. Well, you know, maybe part of being a, a great session musician is knowing where to respectfully say no if somebody's kind of, you know, disappearing down a tunnel of uh, minutiae in the studio. So that was an amazing plus. That was just all the wins there with the Spice Girls. And then, you know, a day of you know, musical, I won't call it torture, but you know, it was kind of an experience there for Sean. Uh, Steve, how about your good self? Do you have a, a best or worst session that you'd like to share with our listeners? I've got to be honest, I'm struggling here because <laughs> that story by Sean is <laughs> it's brilliant, you know. I just, I just I just think to myself, you know, what we said at the beginning of the conversation, you pay, we'll play. It's just like, oh my gosh, <laughs> within reason. Yeah, yeah. But, um, I can think of some sessions where the easy sessions that I've done have probably been the most successful sessions in terms of them being commercialized into industry and having place. So, well, let's start there. The easiest session and one of the, the best sessions was the first number one that I had in the UK was with an artist called Oli Mers. We recorded his first album and the song Dance With Me Tonight. Okay. Easy. Lovely, simple, grade two, grade three type thing, you know. And it was just a case of the producers who we know really well called Future Cut. They had a clear vision of what they wanted. 
you know. So like guys, you know, the horn section, myself, trombone, sax, trumpet. We just got this idea. Nothing was notated. They said we just want something like ba 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 ba. And like, okay, well, let's just jazz up a bit, that kind of thing. <laughs> nice. And they're like, yeah, yeah, sounds good. Can you just uh, maybe do it again? And then can you maybe go into like some form of harmony? And we were in the studio, literally just the three of us around three mics, but same studio. And we just recorded it. And it was we were in and out in like forty-five minutes to an hour. Sweet. If every session was like that, fantastic. I would say where I've been roasted. <laughs> And I'm talking, you know, you're in that room where you have to take your jacket off. (laughs) You know, your T-shirt has to, you know, come up a little bit. You undo the belt. You know, you know you're getting worked. (laughs) It would come from artists. There was an album which I recorded for a fantastic artist called Jocelyn Brown. Um, And also another session that I did was for a a UK rap artist called Wretch32. Now, the great and trying thing here is that you have musicians, as Sean said, you have musicians who are also producers, who are also, you know, they're just fans of music, so they have so many ideas. But when you're a horn player specifically, your lips, your embouchures can only go so far. And it's a little bit more tricky and you have to find ways to work around it. If they're wanting a line that's like, you know, six bars long and it's at semi-quavers at double forte, you know, going nonstop, you know, you need to think about breathing. So you need to articulate things in a different way. But I would say that's probably the hardest sessions that I've done because it's so musical. And what they want to do is obviously, you know, pad things up. So you're playing it as the first trombone and then because they want to open up the chord structure you have to play certain things again and then add a third underneath so you go into a different harmony so you're playing trombone one trombone two trombone three the saxophone's doing the exact same thing saxophone one saxophone so you're making the sound a lot bigger as opposed to it just being the unison line and that's where the sessions that I've been a part of, especially with the the Wretch and Jocelyn, they've been really, really trying. And what makes it even worse is the time of day. Those sessions were recorded like late evening, you know. So your body wants to kind of sleep, but that's when people come alive because some artists are more creative at nighttime and things like that. So interesting. You come out of it feeling absolutely exhausted, but you think to yourself, yeah, that was a it's like going to the gym. It was a good gym session. You don't want to do it too often, but, you know, it was a good session to kind of get your, your work in order, get your lips there. And again, as I said, you know, it goes back from that to having that discipline to being able to do it on the show live, you know. So, yeah, good and bad and ugly, frustrating, all that kind of stuff. Amazing. My goodness. Well, listen, like you've both kind of taken us really behind the curtains into the studio, shown us what a great day and a not so great day might look like for a session musician. But there is a lot of chatter online about AI and this idea of AI being able to generate music. And if you, you know, shovel stuff in, AI can do a reasonable copy of a number of data sources. And, you know, there is some conjecture around, could that be used for some musical generation in the same way that it's generating visual arts with a number of those AI platforms. But, I, you know, listening to what you both do and the kind of importance of 
the vibe and the feel and the experience you bring into it. I, I have strong doubts that robots could ever rock like somebody like Motown's James Jamerson or something. You know, artists with character, with experience, with a lifetime of creativity that goes into those, you know, three or four minutes of perfection. Do you have a view on AI session musicians? Do you think they could work in some situations? Would you ever use them? I mean, for me... AI is something it's it's happening whether we want it or not. But as far as I'm concerned, personally speaking, I'm completely involved in what I'm doing and the way that I'm doing it. And it has absolutely no place in, you know, how I make music. And I think there's other people that will use it and other people that won't, or some people will find a more creative, intelligent way of using it. But I think technology moves so quickly that often, you know, we're losing more than we're gaining now with technology. I, I think for me, music is, in art in general, is about the human experience. It's about the realness that, that we have as people that we can, ex- only a human being can express. Uh, AI will continue to get better. And, and obviously, I think for pop, you know, for like electronic pop music, it's probably perfect. But I think for other music, you know, it's less appropriate, but, uh, you know, it's going to do what it's going to do and people are going to use it the way they're going to use it, right, wrong, and different. But I don't feel threatened by it. I do what I do the way I do it, and that's how I've always done it, and I'll continue to do that to the best of my ability. That's it. There's only one Marvin Gaye. There's only one Jimi Hendrix. There's only one Miles Davis. You know, these people, they make a mark. They do something, and you can imitate that, and you can imitate it quite well, but it still ain't the same thing. I don't know. You know, we'll see. But uh, uh, I'm going to keep on trucking. Whether it's AI or technology, you know, you, you look at certain software out there with the plugins which they have. It's a guitar sample. It's a brass sample. I think the only frustration will be, you know, when we have a pandemic, you know, for musicians, for example, what's, what's happened over the last few years. I remember back in 2009, the UK had a financial crisis. And for a horn section of three and this actually happened for horn section of three of us we were cancelled on a live tour it was three salaries that they had to pay so what do they do because the the financial crisis is what it is they got rid of the horn section and they employed one person to play those sounds on the keyboard now it all comes down to who's listening to the product because you know if i'm going out of a rock band and there's horn section parts there for example to the average listener who's watching the show, they're only thinking about the main person who's singing on that stage. And they can see some drums, they can see a guitarist, they can see a bass guitarist, you know, and they can see a keyboard. They're not having a, a real interest in what's happening with the horn lines per se, so they can get away with that. So I agree. I think in some genres of music specifically directed to pop, that's where AI can have a real fantastic influence. But, you know, there's only the authenticity of who you are as an individual. This is what I said earlier on. What Sean brings to the table is what Sean brings to the table. It's his feel, you know, and you can't take away that authentic music style. Prince could only do what Prince does because it was Prince. Michael Jackson could only do what he was doing because he was Michael Jackson. The same for Stevie, the same for Ray Charles, the same for Elvis, you know, and... You know, session musicians today, Sean Lee, you know, Pino Palladino, you know, Dennis Chambers, all these people will always get a call 
because of who they are and what they're bringing to that session. So I don't think we're in uh, dire straits at all. I think it will actually continue to grow and get better because people are going to be like, oh, no, that sounds a bit manufactured. You know, can I have something that's a bit real? And that's where it will come into play. That's well put, man. 100% strong agree there. I think people will always respond to authenticity. It's something that we crave. It's one of the reasons that live music is so important. And one of the reasons that real session musicians are just, you know, a different, a different ballgame altogether to anything kind of artificially generated. Um, but Sean, I'd love to come over to yourself and get a bit of a feel for any kind of music projects that you're working on at the moment. Anything we should be looking out for? Any forthcoming releases, that kind of thing? The next thing out is actually, well, I found out th- th- this morning, I didn't even know, but Friday the 13th, scary, I know. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I have a couple of pandemic projects. I did a lot of recording during the pandemic and I still haven't released everything, uh, but I have a couple of releases coming next, which were pandemic records. One's called David Fostex. The first thing's coming out on Friday. It's, it's kind of a comedy record, but very, very musical. I mean, very well produced, but it's, it's, it's like 80s radio. It's like a bit of electro pop, bit of sort of Minneapolis print sound, boogie. There's like a Sade parody. There's some Yacht Rock stuff. But all the lyrics are absolutely ridiculous. There's like songs about anything. I think once I decided that there were no limits to what I could lyric, then it just all came out. So um, that's coming out soon, the whole album. And then the next record is something called Ultrasonic Grand Prix, which is myself and Little Barry. And we've made a really freewheeling record, which is sort of probably everything, you know, from the last 50 years of, you know, the last century. So it's like 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. There's a lot of stuff that sounds like samples, but there's no samples Again, pretty wacky, pretty wacky, pretty left field, but and very musical, very something for the heads, but it's also something that you could just put on in the background and tap your foot to and just enjoy it. But uh, that's coming out. And then I'm working on the next Young Gun Silver Fox record as we speak. We're looking to get that out next year. We're off to America in January, February to, to do an, another American tour. And um, I've got a, something that I co-wrote with Andy from, from Younger Silver Fox. This now become the second single in the title track of a very, very big pop group, which is coming out in November. I'm not allowed to say what it is. But one day in the studio at mine, we, we came up with two songs. And on one of those rare occasions, everything came together. We did that, and then I also have just done some stuff for James Morrison, uh, produced and co-wrote a track, and I'm playing on that. That's going to be on his new record. And then I played on a couple other songs on his record as well. Matter of fact, I'm recording a couple of bits for that when I leave here. But uh, yeah, it's it's weird. You know, I continue on with my own projects and sessions. I've, I've got a lot of sessions coming up. I'm going out with Joel Culpepper again uh, in a few days and doing this thing with Tom Mish next week. And I'm off to France tomorrow to do a, a kind of an art thing that I collaborated with a visual artist. And I'm doing a little sort of arty abstract performance when I get over there. <laughs> but yeah, who knows, man? I'll just keep it busy. And uh, there's definitely records in the pipeline and I'm burrowing down and, and just uh, working. Outstanding. My goodness, my Christmas list just got a lot longer there. I'm so happy to hear all of that, Sean. This is great news for music lovers. That's just brilliant. Congratulations. You are absolutely not resting for a nanosecond. And speaking of which, dear listeners, at time of recording, Sean has a session starting, I believe, in 10 minutes. So we are going to wrap, the, we're going to wrap <laughs> yeah, things up yeah. pretty soon. 
I'm going to be late. Okay, I'm going to be so late. Sorry. Okay. Uh, and Steve, how about yourself? I mean, bearing in mind, there's no such thing, obviously, as an ex-musician, but you're not really doing session musician stuff these days. You're doing some incredible work with Race in STEM. Talk to us a bit about what you're doing in 2023. In 2023, heading into 2024, basically what I do is head up a global community that centers around people of different multicultural and ethnic backgrounds within the science, tech, engineering and math space and elevate their voices and present opportunity for them and also help companies identify how they can be authentic with their DEI strategies to helping and supporting these areas specifically. Uh, funnily enough, my music background does get involved in conversations somewhere along the line all the time. But, you know, I am I am beginning to um, to get my trombone out again. Her name is Susudio. <laughs> and, you know, she's uh, she's getting worked a little bit from time to time. <laughs> Good man. Especially with Christmas time popping up, a few sessions here and there. Outstanding. That's great news on all those points there, Steve. Thank you so much. And uh, we actually met at the Dublin Tech Summit, where Steve rocked the main stage and brought a whole <laughs> bunch of amazing people uh, talking about race and STEM. And it was just brilliant. And, you know, again, we're going to be linking to the incredible work of both Steve and Sean in the show notes. Do check it out. OK, as we are wrapping up our session here for Audio Talks, uh, I've got one final question for both of you, and that is to choose a track to add to our VIP title playlist. And we'll start with your good self, Sean. Rolling Back uh, by Young Gun Silver Fox. That's from our fourth album. Outstanding. Excellent choice there, Sean. And Steve, what say you? I'm going to go with something that I love listening to in general. It's a Jamiroquai track and it's called Time Won't Wait. Beautiful. Okay, both those are going on the playlist and I'm going to be really basic and throw on Steely Dan reading in the years because of that incredible solo by Elliot Randall, which is just one of the greatest of all time. And apparently it was one take. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast to open the kimono on the secret lives of session musicians. Thank you, Stephen Fuller. Thank you for having me. Nice to be here. Awesome. And thank you so much, Sean Lee. Cheers, Ashin. Thank you, man. Thank you. Listeners, don't forget to subscribe, comment and share Audio Talks with your friends and family. If you're enjoying the Audio Talks series of podcasts, why not pop over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a nice review. It really does mean a lot and it helps new listeners to know about the awesome guests we talk to in every episode, like Sean and Stephen. In the meantime, for more exclusive content, some behind the scenes goodies and maybe even some competitions, connect with us over on the Instagram. You can find us at Audio Talks Podcast. We'll be back soon for some more session. Fantastic audio talks. See you next time.